A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 107 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, or right on your own Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman, and with me like a Sith gatekeeper to a Sith holocron, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody. I'm actually starting to think that the way that this last week has gone, I'm starting to feel less like a count and more like a freaking referee. <laughs> a mediator? <laughs> you know, I- I've had people actually blame us or, or accuse us of being uh, level-headed this week. And I'm like, really? Me? Like, level-headed? What? Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe for once, uh, maybe you've kept me calm, I guess. Well, I don't know. Come on. Being level-headed this week in in reaction to the story group stuff is very easy to do when everybody else is going bat guano insane for no reason <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm and i'm sure you know as we get to our uh, feedback episode for the marvel disney stuff we'll hit a lot of this stuff as well but but what are you talking about the story group for those that don't know well there were some twitter comments uh made by leland chi that basically Uh, talked about the whole story group concept, which is apparently something that he had talked about also back at Celebration Europe. Uh, Pablo Hidalgo and Leland Chi had talked about the idea that essentially in the wake of Lucas stepping away from Star Wars, at least stepping away from Lucasfilm and such, and Star Wars outside of the broad concepts that he handed off to Kathleen Kennedy for the sequels and whatnot, um, the idea is still to try to have a cohesive continuity in all the different products being put out. Um, so, that being said, they need to have someone there to sort of guide that. And in the past, they've done that in terms of guiding the books, guiding the comics and such. You know, if there's any doubt about that, look back at the Clone Wars before the cartoon series came in and smashed everything into little bitty tiny pieces. Um, that was some extreme coordination between your different, you know, license holders and such. The Lucas books concept. And basically, the idea is that now that Lucas is stepping back from it, there really isn't such a thing, if you want to use holocron database terms, but remember, these are basically for conflict resolution purposes, for them to be able to sort things out in their database and know what came from Lucas, what didn't, uh, what is supposed to be in continuity, what's not, that sort of thing. Basically, if there's no Lucas, then there's no G-canon or T-canon the way that we tend to think of it these days which is this idea of a Lucas-influenced story element that could come in and trample over something else, because Lucas himself isn't providing that type of input. Yeah, there'll probably be some sense that the films can override other things maybe at some point, but at this point, without that happening, everything kind of has a chance to gel together more than it otherwise would, because now the story group, which is essentially the same type of, of coordination that was happening between the books and the comics and video games and such, get to do that type of coordinating with the team behind Rebels, with the team behind the new movies, 
And that should, in theory, mean some more seamless integration between them, certainly more so than back in the olden days, where it was basically Lucas makes a film or Lucas does uh, some Clone Wars episodes and doesn't consult with anybody, and in doing so winds up sort of shattering bits of continuity, and the continuity has to catch up and try to you know retcon itself to make everything fit. That now the hope would be that hopefully there won't be so many contradictions, it's less likely to have to then turn around and retcon to make everything fit. The goal being one seamless continuity. And for whatever reason, maybe it was referring to Lucas uh, not having the ability to come in and basically trample over things or however it was that they put it. They didn't use that word. Um, but his sort of ultimate power of veto, if you want to call it that. Maybe it was just the his mention of that. Stripped. Yeah, mentioning that. Maybe that's what freaked people out. But apparently everybody went absolutely nuts with the idea that the books and the comics can all be canon now. Well, depending on your way of looking at it, they always have been. See canon, etc., etc. They're just as official as they've always been. You think they're going to let the books still override films? No. Um, (laughs) Does that mean that if a film does something that the EU doesn't have to retcon to try to fix it? It probably still will. Um, if there are, you know, contradictions and such, and you got to figure there are going to be contradictions. I'll get to that in a second. But suffice to say, not really a lot has changed, except for the fact that Lucas is stepping away, which gives them a better ability to gel things together. There has not been an announcement of a reboot. I still think one is probably on the way, but there has not been any announcement of a reboot. And nothing that was said in those comments should have led people to say there's going to be a reboot. If nothing else, the fact that they're talking about gelling things together more with the story group between the movies and the TV shows and comics and novels and such should make people think it's less likely to have a reboot. But somehow, everybody went nuts online and just started spreading like wildfire. All these stories about the EU is dead, uh, RIP Star Wars, uh, uh, all this stuff. And no, all they're saying is that it's pretty much what we always expected. Lucas stepped away. They have more control over making things gel. They want to make one cohesive continuity. They have a better chance of doing that now that Lucas is not coming in and tweaking things every so often that, you know, breaks bits and pieces that then have to be fixed. Uh, Of course, they're going to have to still do something to keep track of what's in continuity and what's not. You know, anyone who says this means that everything is going to fit, everything produced will fit, you're assuming then that there'll never be any parodies? There'll never be any Lego Star Wars stuff anymore. Of course, there will still have to be a designation of what's in continuity versus what is out. It's just the idea that the in-continuity stuff won't have something higher than it that will all have to kind of slam together. But what if we've got a situation, and take the novels, take the novelizations. So let's say you do a film, and the comic adaptation and the novelization of that film is being produced based on an earlier version of the script because of production times involved in both, which is always the case for those types of materials. You think there aren't going to be at least a little bit of inconsistencies in the novelization and comic adaptations of the films? They won't have to come in and say, well, the film is the real version of events. Those slightly different versions in the comic and novel, those actually aren't true because, well, they were produced beforehand. Of course, there's still going to be a need to keep track of what is and is not valid. But there should Mm -hmm. be less of a need for there to be a hierarchy of it, even internally, so they don't have to worry about Lucas coming in as much and trumping things. It's basically the ultimate veto of Lucas isn't there anymore. Because Lucas isn't there anymore. What's news about this? Um, And people just freaked. So relax. There's been no reboot mentioned. There's been no reboot 
um, announced. I'm betting if you ask them directly about a reboot, the answer will be that that's not what they're planning, or they'll give you stunned silence that you're daring to ask. Um, it's just not yet announced. If they're going to do something like that, this wasn't it. Stop spazzing. Coming from me. <laughs> Coming from me. Stop spazzing. You know, the databank's always been the internal tracking system anyway. I know I know I've been kind of guilty of talking about CCAN and that's my favorite place to dwell, but you know, I it's always been the official continuity as you always call it, you know. But it, it, getting to the tier side of things, as Lucas always, you know, looked at it as the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost with everything that he did as the father and the son being all the licensee stuff, it kind of seems like the father and son layer are becoming one, uh, which you know, it's kind of funny because, like, they still haven't said, you know, which type of fans getting hosed here. Is the movie only fans having to accept the EU or are the EU fans going to accept that they're going to lose stuff? I mean, that's still nothing has been said there. And so it's funny how, you know, fandom ran in so many different ways with that little little bit of tidbit, you know. And the only thing to me that came across was clarifying what I felt was always the case was Lucas no longer has that omnipotent, you know, vote yet. Finally he's out, but there was still that contingent of fans that were like, you know, he's given treatments. He's still got a voice. They're still meeting with him. But now I'm under the impression that George is just taken in like any other talent that provides insight that, you know, he no longer has the carte blanche. Well, it's sort of like, remember the way he looks at it is like there's, his universe and there's the universe of all the licensed stuff that he allowed to be created. In theory, these have always been two separate universes, two separate timelines. Lucas's being less full of stories, but then there's the EU, and he didn't have any desire or need to take the EU into account. And what made these two so interlinked is it's almost like, like I've got a gradebook program, and one of the things you can do on the gradebook program is set it up so that if you go in and try to put in a grade for the semester for a student, but let's say they go in and do some makeup work at the last minute once you've always already put that grade in. You can go in and put in the grade for that missing assignment, and it's hot-linked so that it then updates that final grade of the semester without you having to go manually do it. That's kind of what was the case, because that core that Lucas created, or that Lucas directly influenced, if it was changed, instead of the EU saying, nope, we're only based on the version of the films that existed at the time that the EU began, they instead would then update and say, okay, well, the version of the films and the version of the television productions and such that are in the EU, yeah, those are actually now those newer versions too. Um, sort of letting the one independent continuity that can pretty much do whatever it wants influence the other one. And yeah, the hierarchy, the, the concept is internal, but it also showed us how conflict resolution worked, the, how Lucas generally was allowed to trump anything else. The films trumping pretty much whatever. Um, the Clone Wars cartoon series trumping also pretty much anything else in the licensed works. What's in continuity versus what is non-continuity, what is iffy continuity. No matter what we called them, and whether it came to look like a hierarchy, it was going to appear to be a hierarchy to anyone who looked at it. Um, going in so, in so far as going back to, say, the films themselves, where you have now... Basically, um, remember, there was a point at which when talking about canon, one of the things they talked about was how the novelizations and the comic adaptations of the films, right? I guess the novelizations and the radio dramas of the films were thought of as somewhat more definitive because they are based directly on George Lucas's vision. They're adapting something George himself actually created. Kind of like the Clone Wars takes Lucas's ideas and then, you know, runs with it to make the episodes of the show. And as such, that means that when it comes to versions of events in the films, they would basically say that, well, those 
are all pretty much equal, or those are all lumped in there. Those are, you know, those are the core stories. But there was question, well, wait a second. What about the fact that the novelization of Empire Strikes Back calls Yoda blue instead of green? What about the fact um, that we have different dialogue a lot of times in the radio dramas because they're doing it for audio rather than for video, so they're having to describe things? Well, of course, the movies trump both of those. The novelizations were thought of as closer to the films than the radio dramas were in terms of dialogue and such, of course. So you already had sort of this films trump the novelizations, trump the radio dramas, but they're all film adaptations, so they all kind of trump everything else. And then Lucas himself comes in and says, well, there's, see, there's my original version of the films, then there's my special editions of the films and the DVD versions of the films, and now the Blu-ray versions of the films. So whether you're going to call it a hierarchy or not, that's what it was in terms of conflict resolution. And I don't see how, how fans could have approached this saga without recognizing that internal distinction as some kind of hierarchy. Because even if you take the letters away, you'd still have to be able to say, this is in continuity. C, this is not. N, this is the mm -hmm. stuff that's iffy. S, we're not quite sure. This is the stuff that Lucas created that gets to trump everything. G, this is the stuff that's on television that Lucas influenced but still gets to trump everything even though it's not all him. T, okay, take away the labels if you want, but in order for us to know what we should be accepting as true Star Wars at any given point in time, yeah, mm -hmm. we had to recognize that system. Prior to that, it was just stories being in or out of continuity. And granted, that was very straightforward, but also led to some instances where things like the Trioculus books got completely dumped out of continuity as soon as they decided to publish Courtship of Princess Leia. There was that, that inflexibility. And if you did see something show up from something out of continuity, there was that, no, 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 just because there's a reference to Trioculus in this book doesn't mean that all six of those books are now in continuity. No, no, no. All it means yeah. is that there's an alternate reality version of Trioculus somewhere within the official continuity. And that became sort of a difficult-to-explain conundrum to new readers. I'm like glad the they went with the... dark side. Yeah. I'm glad they did go to a point where they did a, uh, a hierarchy or, or a classification system within the Holocron where it's about individual elements, not entire stories, so they can mesh things more together. But... I don't know. I, on the one hand, I wish the terminology, when they talk about about the story group and such, um, were clearer or clearer for the mass media that goes nuts and says all of a sudden that there's a reboot when there's not. But yeah. at the same time, it's it's if they're going to try to say that this has only ever been an internal thing, which it's sort of meant to be, that doesn't have any effect on the way that fans see the saga. I think that in and of itself is also somewhat disingenuous because we've got to know what's in and out. Because, you know, if I'm looking at a story, you know, there's, there's deep discussions about Star Wars stuff and all kinds of elements from within the comics, the novels, and so forth. You want to make sure that your comments and your uh, conversations are intellectually honest and that you're not trying to argue, for instance, you know, um, there's a missing part of the continuity, man, because, see, there was this alternate timeline, and Vader had this white armor, and that white armor never shows up again. That's crap, man. What happened to the white armor? Well, who gives a crap? It was a non-continuity story. You're telling me that we're not supposed to care and notice and, and make that distinction when having our conversations? That's disingenuous in and of itself. But either way, the biggest disingenuous of this week has been the, because there is a story group, they've announced a reboot, which is absolute bullstocko, to use a defiance term. Now, another question I had for you before we move away from this is, uh, you know, the story group, is it driving? As in, now, are they in a position of being Lucas, or are they now 
following what the films do is is the films now lucas and they go off of what comes out of the films or are they actually telling the people making the films like this is the direction we're going and do what you do but stay within the confines of this i mean what do you think it sounds like it's much more of like a coordination it's the idea that this is a partnership this is a team effort to try to produce something that is going to be able to work across different lines and uh the example has been brought up for instance jj abrams in doing the two newest Star Trek films, um, love them or hate them, I particularly am very fond of them. But yeah, in doing the comic books that tie into them, like uh, Star Trek Con recently, um, mm -hmm. the people who write the script or have been part of the script writing, or Cyan Kurtzman, um, have taken an active role in helping to guide the comics or providing input into the comics so that it is more seamless than it otherwise would be. They don't make a huge deal about it but that it's more seamless than it otherwise might be. Um, we'll see what happens when the story group is producing stories that go beyond, say, episode 7, and then episode 8 comes around and possibly squashes something that was made in the wake of episode 7. But for now, it seems much more like it's a, uh, it's, a it's sort of a, a, a collaborative thing. Do I think that they're going to let the books or comics rule what happens in the films? I ex I'm extremely doubtful of, of that. I don't think any franchise is going to be dictated to in that sense. But I would say that the discussions about what's going to be in the films versus otherwise is probably going to be something discussed so early on, so far out and in so much detail, that as the EU is being crafted, or EU reboot, if there is one, is being crafted, say, in the lead-up towards Episode 7 or between 7 and 8, they'll be able to keep things more in line with the film that there's not, it's not going to feel like it's just, it's not going to feel like, well, there's the books and there's the films, and let's see if they're going to contradict each other. It'll feel like, hey, they're actually following a freaking blueprint this time, essentially. Well, it'll be like, it'll be like retcons back before Lucas got into the prequels. You know, remember when retcons actually, they, they solved things? They weren't like reactions and band-aids to things? <laughs> you yeah, know? It's, it's... Like, we'll be in an era where we won't need the unneeded retcon. Well, it makes me think of, you know, the, the way that The Clone Wars was put together. You get the writers all to sit around in a room breaking stories, um, figuring out what they're going to do for the season, and then they all go and do their thing. You know, that's that's what I'm expecting out of this story group. And to hear that it's people like Leland Chi, Pablo Hidalgo, um, people with extensive, extensive backgrounds in what has come before, um, yeah. I think that is necessarily a good sign you know given i mean we still don't know hardly anything there, the other things breaking around this time is the whole you know which actors are in which actors are out now that aren't is out how is it that kazdan and abrams are retooling things and when is they supposed to start shooting and are they casting anyone etc etc all that kind of stuff um but at least from the standpoint of a synergy between film television books comics etc etc whether it's going to be with the current eu which i doubt or something new going forward i certainly have more hope now uh, th this is going to go smoothly thanks to the whole story group concept. If there's anything to take away from this rumbling of the last week, it's that. It's that yeah. this is good news. We don't know what it's going to look like going forward, but you know what it's not going to look like? Luke is coming in and trampling all over stuff and then going, Haha, it's my sandbox. Yeah, and having that's to where I was too. I, I, I totally had that positive feeling. Like, you know, it, the EU may be considered, you know, it, not that, like you said, not that it's going to be confining but I think for the first time now you've got a group that's like, let's find another way. You know, we've got these things that happen. You don't have to reference them, but let's not conflict with them as well. And 
I don't, you know, I've never seen that being an issue before with Lucas, aside from the fact that Lucas just didn't want to take the time to think a little farther outside the box, you know? Like, oh, we had to introduce Quinlan Voss, but we had to make him a surfer. Like, why? Why do we need to do that? Why Why do we have to make, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, Barris Ophi into the bad guy when you already had Quinlan Voss that could have easily been that character under the guise of Count Dooku with other stuff? You know, I mean... There were already all those examples, and and the sandbox is the prime example there. I mean, for me, this news was was definitely optimistic. It got me less doom and gloom, and it was like for the first time I felt like, hey, you know, we may actually see stuff that's set in you know the EU timeline, not not necessarily in the actual EU timeline, but now that EU timeline is shifting and becoming canon in a way that's more you know like a like a haha to those that only like the films and hated everything else it's like this stuff may just get some legitimacy now because I always think back to Leland saying you know flat out there will never be more than just the one continuity even though you had Lucas saying there's two you know and it was like now Luke now you got Leland on this team that that just fills me with so much hope just think of it like you've got multiple different uh, pathways that have up until now been creating Star Wars stories. You've got the highway, the byway, and the interstate. It's just that now, since Lucas is gone, the navigator who was always insisting on one path or the other, those three paths, in a sense, are now converging. G, T, C, canon. Think of it now as we would just simply, hopefully someday, just need a designation of, hey, these are in continuity, these are not. And that that's it. Um, and that, I would say, that simplification to that degree would be something that would be a welcome change simply because it puts Star Wars, it still allows for Star Wars to be the one with the big interconnected continuity out there, or the one that was at least one of the first to try to do it, but it makes it so that newcomers to the saga don't have to figure out what the different designations are to figure out what trumps what anymore. It's simply, this is in or this is out. You want to talk about accessibility, that's the key element of accessibility that new readers need. It's not, can I jump in without needing any kind of background or having any connections to other stories whatsoever, because that makes things very light and very fluff. Razor's Edge, anyone? <laughs> what you need is something that says, hey, you don't have to do a bunch of homework to know what the hell is going on when it comes to what stories count and what stories don't. You see this? Angry Birds, Star Wars? Chances are, that's not in continuity. This novel, yeah, probably is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And speaking of stories, uh, you know, the next little bit we have before we jump into things is contest details. Uh, you know, our 100 celebration contest giveaway is continuing to spread out throughout this month and maybe a little into next. Uh, Nathan, what do we have up? All right. So when it comes to the contests, uh, at this point, uh, we have a new winner to announce. We've passed the deadline at this point for Crucible. And uh, the winner for the hardback copy of Star Wars Crucible was Daniel Contreras. Now, at this point, by the time you listen to this, unless it's really, really, really late at night on January 17th, uh, we are passing the deadline for the two different versions of Wars the Battle of Phobos preludes with my story Healers and Hunters in it, uh, signed and sent out to whoever wins that one. Uh, we still have Scoundrels, Star Wars Scoundrels by Timothy Zahn, up for grabs. You need to get those entries in by January 24th. We have the first of the Equals and Opposites Star Wars Tales number 21 comic packs with my story in it that I'll sign for the winner. Uh, to enter for that one, you've got up until the 31st of January. We still have the Into the Void hardback. Uh, you can enter for that one up until February 7th. And now we are going to uh, introduce uh, the second copy of Greater Good, the second 
copy of my time travel, telepaths, and telekinetics novel, my full-length novel that came out from Grail Quest Books, the uh, revised and extended version beyond the self-published one with a nice afterword and whatnot in it. Uh, I will sign that, of course, for the winner. And to enter to win that one, you'll want to enter slightly differently than last time. You'll email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com, and in the subject line, put greater good two rather than one this time, since this is the second copy that we are giving away. So send those entries in. Make sure that you have that subject line, greater good two. You have your name and mailing address in the body of the email, and make sure you get those entries in by February 14th. As for those previous ones, to enter for Into the Void, make your subject line Into the Void. The Equals and Opposites comic pack, make the subject line Equals and Opposites 1, because we are going to give away one more of those in our next episode. And then for Scoundrels, put Scoundrels for Preludes, put Preludes. Good luck! And may the Force be with you. Now here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore Star Wars Legacy, Volume 4, Alliance, by Dark Horse Comics. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we're going to give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. All right, well, this is kind of an odd collection, and we need to probably think of this in terms of chronology when it comes to the Legacy series, because this was a somewhat jumbled time period for Legacy stories. We're dealing, in this case, with Volume 4, which is entitled Alliance. It doesn't actually include any stories called Alliance, though. It includes issues 20, 21, 22, and 27. Now, this is Indomitable Parts 1 and 2, which is issues 20 and 21, the Wrath of the Dragon, which is issue 22, and then Into the Core, which is issue 27. It is jumping over the two-part loyalty storyline and the two-part The Hidden Temple storyline, both of which show up in Volume 5, The Hidden Temple. This is the second-to-last of the trade paperbacks worth of stories, though, as we're leading up to eventually talking about Vector. Um, what makes these unusual, chronologically, you may recall that the last storyline that we talked about for this particular series, for Legacy, was Claws of the Dragon. Big uh, confrontation between Cade Skywalker, Darth Krayt, and so on and so on. Okay, Into the Core, which is issue 27 of all of this, takes place apparently immediately after Claws of the Dragon. So the last one in this trade paperback... And the 27th in the overall series, after several other issues, is actually the one that takes place immediately after issue 19, Claws of the Dragon. Okay. Well, that's kind of true and, and not true, because, I mean, it, it flashes back to that. I mean, it starts out, and it's got Darth Warlick on his way to the Deep Core, and then it flashes back to the moments of Claws of the Dragon. Except it's it, they put Crate into stasis briefly, and that's and he's in stasis while this trip is being made, and he's already back out of stasis with Weirlock present in Indomitable and in Wrath of the Dragon. Uh-huh. So it, it, oh. is, it is earlier. Then you've got Indomitable, which is said to be concurrent, or I guess it wasn't Indomitable, it was uh, Wrath of the Dragon he shows up in. Um, Indomitable is a two-issue storyline 
but it is concurrent. It even says inside the issue, it is concurrent with the last issues of Claws of the Dragon. Um, basically, the last couple issues of the Claws of the Dragon story arc, and at least the first issue of the Loyalty story arc that is coming up uh, the next time we talk about Legacy. Um, I deal with that a little bit with the Wrath of the Dragon summary in the, the timeline. Wrath of the Dragon, which has horrible artwork, by the way, uh, it's, okay, it's right before the beginning of Loyalties in some respects. Um, Crate's actions on Dak in Wrath of the Dragon are seen by Cade live in Loyalties Part 2. Yet Loyalties Part 2 is only four days after the events of Loyalties Part 1, Wrath of the Dragon is three days after the end of Indomitable Part 2. So it basically you've got a lot of these, these, these overlaps. Loyalties Part 1 has to be concurrent with the last little bit of Indomitable. Wrath of the Dragon is essentially concurrent to Loyalties Part 2. Um, and of course, Into the Core is the one immediately after Claws of the Dragon. Suffice to say, don't necessarily read them in the order that they appear in the trade paperback. It is much better, I would say, to read 27... And then you should be good to read 20, 21, 22, and continue on with the next trade paperback with loyalties. Um, that's not going to throw you off all that much. The only one that's heavily, heavily out of sync with, as opposed to overlapping with the other issues around it, is number 27, Into the Core. This is also a trade paperback, though, I would point out, that is not the regular team. John Ostrander is writing these, as he tends to do in this series, but you do not have Jan Dursima doing the art for any of these. Instead, you have Omar Francia doing the art for 2021 and 27, and for Wrath of the Dragon, you have Alan Robinson doing the rather cartoony, ridiculous, still better than I could draw, art uh, in that particular issue. But these are necessary stories. One story to show us a little bit more in flashback as to how the Galactic Alliance was defeated back in the Sith Imperial War. Uh, why it was that Gar Stasi managed to escape with his group as opposed to the rest of the Alliance. Um, we get to see how they get a new flagship for the Galactic Alliance and uh, start inroads towards eventually uh, having an alliance between the uh, Rowan Fell's Imperial uh, forces, or his version of the Imperial forces, the Loyalist forces, um, and Gar Stasi's Alliance forces. We learn a little bit more about the makeup of the current Rogue Squadron, uh, we see the beginnings of the horrible, horrible things that are going to be done to the Mon Calamari and the Quarren, to an extent, of the planet Dak or the planet Mon Calamari or Mon Cala, whatever the heck Lucas is calling it this week. Um, and we get to see the efforts being made uh, on behalf of Darth Krait to extend his life from those Yuzhanvong things that are within his body that are slowly taking him over, along with the question of, well, which Sith that Cade managed to harm pretty heavily survive and how do they survive after the events of Claws of the Dragon. So no Dursima, which stinks, but from the standpoint of necessary continuity links, it'd be easy to dismiss this one. You can't. You need these links. Make sure you check these out if you're in the process of reading Legacy. You cannot skip this trade paperback, even if it looks like it. Yeah, I, I was going to come at it from a different angle. Like, this would not be something I would suggest if you haven't read any of Legacy. Don't pick this up. This is definitely something if you're taking the, you know, the voyage from beginning to end. This is, in, it's integral. But it's not something that is one of those that stands out where, like, you got to get it. Like, like Claws of the Dragon, you could get that one and read it by itself and kind of get an idea what's going on. But this one, I, I think you'd be bored not realizing all the really cool, like Nathan just described, all these link-ups that are going on. Um, 
the art and stuff, you know, yeah, I, I agree. 22 is a little weaker, uh, but I, I didn't mind a 20 and 21 and even 27. The art in that was, was great. I mean, I didn't even realize that, uh, that Jan had, had stepped away even it was, it was on par, uh, in most respects. Uh, but I like the story that where we're going with this. It's, it's fun. It's nice to see the Alliance side of things. And at the same time, you know, you, you just get all these really cool, you know, battles, you get the flashbacks at sometimes it gets a little confusing as to which battle you're in based on, you know, I was reading it in singles and it goes from one where you're in the, uh, the future to going back to the past flashback in the battle of Kamas. And when you're going from cover to cover of the comics, it literally jumps from one battle to the other. And if you're not really paying attention, you may assume that you're not, in the past when you start the next comic you're like wait whoa what uh, and that's interesting but you know it's one of those when we get to 27 i i really found that that for for a, a standalone kind of tale as it was it was very interesting because it had roots back to uh darth Anadu or, or however you say his name and what was going on with with the sith holocron if you remember back when uh crate was talking with the different holocrons he had a, a bane's holocron he had this holocron and i believe he had uh one more it could have been darth nails or uh, niles or whatever that darth from kotor 2 was but anyway uh, they were all mocking him and stuff it, it, i found that this one adds some interesting aspects to that holocron of darth anandu and and the way that that plays out when we get to it i, I thought it was a really cool little twist on the tale the sith versus sith you know which you'll actually see later in uh, legacy volume 2 with some sith versus sith action We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. We start out with issues 21, or excuse me, 20 and 21 that make up Indomitable Part 1 and 2. John Ostrander and Omar Francia being our primary team this time around. We start with a Quarren Sith, Darth Azard, punishing uh, the current leader of the search for Gar Stasi, uh, the uh, captain of, I believe it's called the Relentless, uh, Admiral Shah Dun, for not being able to catch Stasi basically fast enough at this point. And he gives command of the search over to Admiral Valen. We'll find that Valen, who is a human and a very speciesist human who wants the aliens uh, off the crew or at least uh, not on the bridge with him among the crew, um, he is someone who has some past with Gar Stasi and with the Battle of Kamas, which was the turning point, of course, uh, of the battle between the Galactic Alliance and the Empire or the Imperial Remnant, whatever you want to call it, back when the Sith were guiding them and had uh, were mostly behind the scenes, but had finally sort of shown themselves in the galaxy, and they realized that there were more stakes to that particular war than just Empire versus Alliance at that point. The focus of this, though, is on Mon Calamari. You have the planet Dak, as it's called by its inhabitants, according to the issue, at least, um, and it is surrounded, of course, by the orbital shipyards. They make up basically a ring, kind of like a Saturn-style ring around the planet, and that's where the Mon Cal cruises and such were being built, and that is where now a lot of Imperial ships are being built. They've been basically forced to build these things uh, with the Quarren in charge of the planet as opposed to the Mon Calamari, and they're in the process of building a new uh, advanced Star Destroyer called the Imperius for the Empire. Um, if you've recently been reading through 
uh, Legacy Volume 2, Outcasts of the Broken Ring, the second storyline there. This is the ring, and this is the storyline in which that ring is broken uh, yeah. it, to make up that title. Well, just real quick, I want to comment on that. Uh, you know, it was interesting. They go following the ascendancy of the Sith. The Corrin were made the rulers of Dak as opposed to the power sharing government that preceded it, which it's like you would think the Corrin by now would know not to align themselves with the Sith. I mean, after the Clone Wars, after the Empire, all these different, you know, times that they thought they were getting power, it has always come back and slapped them in the face. And I mean, but all they did was they basically made it so that the shipyard is now emperor crates personal shipyard and i mean it's just like you would think that they would have learned yeah but what choice did they have i mean open resistance would get them killed and doing nothing would get them taken over anyway i mean it's kind of a you know if if you're being offered a chance to live and fight another day it seems like that's the that's what they took um the quarren certainly wind up paying the price though as you said uh, for their cooperation in this case um in any event, so we wind up finding that uh, one of the uh, members of Rogue Squadron, uh, Monia Gahan, uh, M-O-N-I-A-G-A-H-A-N, happens to be uh, related to her uncle, Gial, or Gial, G-I-A-L, Gahan, who is one of the lead guys at these shipyards. Okay? Uh, and she's working with him. She's trying to convince him to have them somehow be able to steal the Imperius. And he's not willing to basically get everyone involved in this, get the Mon Calamari themselves to rise up and be involved in this, but he's willing to put the blame essentially on himself. He's willing to give them the codes that they need, help them to steal the Imperius for the Alliance, or the Alliance Remnant, and uh, the result, he thinks, is going to be simply that the Empire is going to need someone to blame, and since he's truly the one who would have helped them, he could take the brunt of all of the blame on himself, thereby sparing reprisals against any other Mon Calamari. Turns out that's not necessarily true, but it's certainly what he thinks is going to happen. So he's willing to essentially risk his life or sacrifice his life, I guess, in a sense here, because he's not even willing to entertain the notion of escape. Because if he were to escape, it would mean that the reprisals would not have a dedicated target, and chances are the Empire would take it out on pretty much anybody in the vicinity. I mean, he was totally on to something there, you know, <laughs> when you know what's coming later. Did you notice, though, when they get uh, when his niece leaves, they leave on the uh, Scarlet Star? It, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that not the same type of ship as Dash's Outrider? Uh, uh, YT-2100, I think? It is. It's the same type as, as the Outrider. I was less concerned about that, though I thought it was kind of cool to see it there. Um, then two things that popped up. One, Scarlet Star. Are you promoting communism, young man? Um, but also, uh, <laughs> the fact that, and this may be changed, are you looking at the individual issues of the trade paperback? I've got the individuals. Okay, because in the individual issues, whenever they land back, uh, in the docking bay as their parting ways here, as, uh, uncle and niece, or, yeah, and niece, are parting ways, um, the imperial officer who comes out and speaks to them says, uh, Jiao Gahar? With an R instead of an N at the end of his name. I'm not sure if that was an a typo slash thing, a, a wrong bit of lettering, or if this is supposed to show that this uh, lieutenant, Strom Dubrock, just couldn't be bothered to care to learn this alien's proper name. Wasn't quite sure how that was supposed to um, to be taken. Yeah, I, I think you're probably onto something there. You know, they're, they're definitely... Well, I think even this could be part of that, that aspect of where you're seeing the... Uh, 
the aliens getting kicked out and you're seeing that speciesism kind of coming back. You know, maybe he's one of those hand-picked uh, bigoted guys. Could be. We also find that they are spotted by a Toydarian that's supposed to be a female, but how could you even tell? Um, spotted by a Toydarian uh, as they're leaving. It's Monia, and she hooks up with another member of Rogue Squadron uh, to leave together and go back to the fleet. That is uh, Ange Dahl, uh, who is not only a member of Rogue Squadron, but a strong female character and not white. As a human, I was very impressed by them actually creating a character that was not a white male in this case. Um, they return back to the fleet only to find that Rogue Squadron's having a bit of an initiation type of thing going on. Uh, and Durgo, who is the Doug, who is supposedly the best pilot in the modern Rogue Squadron, is whooping up on a new member of Rogue Squadron who turns out to be Hondo Carr, the Mandalorian, from back in the story Noob. I'm sure you were happy to see him back, right? I was. Yeah, Hondo Carr for me was one of the uh, hidden stars of the series. I mean, you know, he goes from, you know, as we later find out, he was once Mandalorian, then he hides with the uh, Joker squadron of the 501st, and then when he leaves in the last one we saw him in, uh, I can't even remember the name of it, but that it ended with him walking away, and we didn't know where he went. And then, boom, oh, hey, he shows up in the Rebels. Well, well the Alliance, and now he's part of the Rogue Squadron. It's like, oh, sweet. We also meet the leader of Rogue Squadron, who breaks up the little uh, tussle there based on uh, just a, an offense, more or less. Um, Joram Bay, who is a weak way, and is at this point the leader of Rogue Squadron, but he will switch positions by the time this story is over with. Um, we see Monia providing the information about what exactly it is that the plan entails to perhaps get their hands on the Imperius, and we wind up, uh, she's briefing Gar Stasi himself, but then also Captain Yorub, who is a Solaston and is not only the second-in-command now with Gar Stasi, but was also second-in-command aboard uh, the ship that Stasi was in and commanding at the Battle of Kamas. So he's another character who we will find has some history uh, with the Battle of Kamas, just like uh, Valen, the Imperial, and, of course, Gar Stasi here. And I like the way that played out, the, the, the two stories back and forth. I mean, granted, there was a moment when I switched comics that I got confused, but it played well. It does. It works basically because uh, as Monia leaves, Stasi and Yoru basically are both thinking, yeah, this is a trap. It sounds exactly like Kamas, which gives us our beginning of a flashback back to the uh, triumvirate, basically the military, the Jedi, and uh, uh, the politicians, I guess, um, that are running the Galactic Alliance. And this is back, of course, around the time of the Battle of Kamas. It's during the Sith Imperial War. We find that Cole Skywalker is there to represent the Jedi. Uh, you have Rear Admiral Pierce Petan there. Uh, you have New Torina. You have Bail Antilles. No, not the prequel era Bail Antilles. A different Bail Antilles. Um... And there's a lot of disagreement as to whether or not this is a trap, whether or not uh, that, that is uh, the, the attack on Kamas would be a trap or not based on uh, trying to go after Rowan Fell, who at that time is still the leader of the Empire. Remember, he doesn't get, get booted until the events in the first issue of Broken that we saw. Um, and they decide apparently that despite it being a trap and despite Garstasi's warnings, they're going to do it anyway. Uh, that they can't pass this up. They need to be able to win the war fast by getting fell because there's a lot of planets that are either sitting it out or they're joining the Empire actively. So Stasi and Yorub, I mean, they're ready to go into this battle. They're going to follow their orders, but they're going to make sure that there is essentially a back door open for there to be some measure of escape 
when they fall into what they think is obviously a trap. And then that brings us back to the conversation in the present day where they're talking about the same type of thing and the idea that they could perhaps, given the fact that they expect this to be a trap, perhaps they could use the trap and make it work for them, turning it somehow onto the people who think they're going to be trapped. I, I think that's a, a nice strategy. And given the fact that you have Valen basically um, talking about how Gar Stasi, he's not a strategic thinker, etc., etc., basically downplaying Stasi because he's an alien and because of the events at Kamas and such, um, you get the sense that Stasi has something to prove here, if nothing else than to his enemies, that he is a strategic thinker, that this is a man uh, who is to be reckoned with. Just because he's the one in charge now, as opposed to the people who used to be running the Alliance, that doesn't make the Alliance less of a threat. Perhaps it makes it more. I like the way it played out, too. He goes, I've studied Stasi. I know every move he's likely to make. I know him better than he knows himself. Shall I tell you what is going to happen two days from now when the Imperius is ready to leave Space Dock? And as he's explaining it, it's actually showing you what literally is happening, you know. Which and, makes and, no sense when you first read it. Am yeah, I the only one who was completely like, confused the first time reading that section? No, I was too. It wasn't until you get all the way done. And you're like, oh, okay, this is literally happening. Because at first, you just, I just thought that he was just talking about what could happen. I didn't realize this was legitimately going down. Yeah, it's weird. It, I guess it would make sense in a movie, right? Let me show you how this is going to go yeah. down. And then you, yeah. you hear them talking, and then the mission itself takes place, and they come out the other side of the mission, and they're like, okay, you know, so now what do we do? But this felt much more to me like, if you remember the planning scene in the original Mission Impossible, you know, hey, it's much worse than you think. And he explains everything, and then it goes back to the conversation, and now they're going to actually go do the mission, and we get a lot more details to it. We basically see the entire plan, or at least the initial plan, okay, which is to have, uh, have uh, Dial on the planet uh, deactivate the automated defenses, and send a signal to let the Alliance know that the defenses are down, so they can come in and take over the Imperius, which is at that point um, with just a skeleton crew aboard. And then once they're already there, Stasi ships jump in from hyperspace, thinking that they've got the Imperius, but then the Imperials jump in behind them, essentially, and wind up boxing them between uh, the defenses of the planet, the, the defense platform, and uh, the Imperial ships, they wind up getting Guile, they wind up uh, arresting him, basically catching him while he's there uh, at the defense uh, controls. They reactivate them. Aboard the Imperius, out pops some stormtroopers that were in hiding and take out Stasi's men. And then, it's not just TIE fighters coming to attack, it's you know the huge Star Destroyers jumping in. And now, basically, Stasi's tr troops are trapped between yeah. the, the automated defenses of the ring itself and all these Star Destroyers coming at them from behind. But that is told in the span of its seven panels, uh, one three-panel page, another three-panel page, and then one page that's like a huge, cool-looking uh, double spread, which is nice. Yeah. That's um, one of my favorite big shots of the whole Legacy series, when it goes, this time there will be no escape. And it's got all, you know, like what you just described, the fleets in the middle of the ring and the, and the Imperial fleet. Glorious shot. And it's awesome, except then, after, up until that point, it's all been in narration of him telling the other person, this is what's going to happen. And then the next panel is him standing on the bridge, hands behind his back, doing almost the splits, saying, Garstasi, this is Admiral Drew Valen of His Majesty Darth Crate's Third Fleet. Your arrival was anticipated. At which point I'm thinking, wait, what? 
It there, couldn't have been anticipated that much because he was obviously sweating. Because oh no, the not, not the anticipation. I'm saying what because there's no way when you're first reading this that the first read is going to be that everything was happening while he was describing it, not that, hey, this is a comic book, he's describing it, and we need some visuals to go with it, we're going to show you what it's possibly going to be like. This story would have made more sense as without that 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 jerkiness to the storytelling in this first issue, if there had been a third issue, and in between this one and the next one, we actually saw those events take place, rather than basically zipping through a big chunk of the conflict in the story, lightning fast. It'd be like saying, um, watch A New Hope, now watch Return of the Jedi. We're going to very quickly recap what happened in uh, Empire Strikes Back in a little 10-minute segment right before you watch Jedi. Yeah, well, and this is also that part where it jumps from the one issue to the other where you get completely confused because the last thing you see Stasi say is Kamas acknowledging you know, the trap from before, and then when you get into 21, 21 literally starts in a flashback at Kamas but it also has Stasi still sitting over the same type of hologram because he's in the same type of ship. So it's like, you know, if you're not paying attention to the uniform change, that was where I got lost. I was like, wait, whoa, what's going on? But then as you continue on into 21, it explains, and then everything makes sense. But you literally have to get into 21 before you really put the pieces together and go, oh, oh, okay. And yeah, like you said, I think it was meant to be more like a movie, kind of like how Ocean's... Uh, Ocean's 12 did, you know, when they had their little scenes of the, the how did you do that? And they go back and they flash back over it and stuff. I, that's that's kind of how I got it. I was completely confused until I got halfway into 21. And then I was like, oh, okay. Because especially once you jump in, it, at least it says the Battle of Kamas nearly eight years ago. But you're like, wait, this looks exactly like what was going on before, except for now Stasi's uniform is just a little different. Like, that threw me completely. Yeah, he definitely has a different uniform. Uh, Yoru seems to be wearing something relatively similar, and yeah, it's it's like a mirror image type of shot. He's leaning over the controls. Uh, Yoru is behind him and so forth. Um, I'm glad that they at least said the Battle of Kamas nearly eight years ago to start out the second issue. Um, but even then, I think that would still be confusing possibly to somebody who's reading the trade paperback and doesn't see the issue split. Because a lot of times in yeah. Star Wars, they don't do the... Um, the the little fuzzy, cloudy bubble things for thoughts. A lot of times thoughts are done in little narration boxes like that. And the last thing he said in the previous issue was he's looking at the thing and he goes, Kamas. And it could very easily have been the Battle of Kamas nearly eight years ago. Something to go along with his thoughts and clarify what he just said out loud, not necessarily be a tag to tell us when this flashback is taking place. When it's two issues at least, you're not thinking about that being the last scene. And you're thinking about it being the tag for what you're seeing right then. The other interesting thing about it, though, is is it gives you insight as to, you know, the backgrounds between these two guys and the fact that, you know, Stasi already knew this one. The Battle of Kamas was a trap. He had the back door ready. And so you're about to see him react to his first springing of the trap by this Imperial officer. So, it, you know, it leads into what you're going to see later in this issue when he springs the second trap. It's like, well, he, he sprung the first trap. He got away. I mean, yeah, he, they lost half the Imperial or the uh, Alliance fleet. But that wasn't his choice. Stasi could only save what he could, and so even knowing it was a trap, he still managed to save the day for the Alliance. Yeah, it winds up being something where you look at both sides and it feels like it's that overly elaborate plan. Uh, you may, if you watch any of the YouTube videos by Cinema Sins, uh, they have the uh, everything wrong with such and such movie in however many minutes or less. Uh, one of the things that they often point out is the ridiculousness of certain types of plots, like especially in James Bond movies, of what the villain must have been counting on to happen 
to somehow end up with the last part of his plan actually making sense and how none of it could have been predicted, uh, at least with any degree of specificity. Uh, some of this kind of has that feeling. It feels when you step back and you try to figure out, okay, who planned what now? Uh, there's a level of, of incredulity that seeps into it. But in the <laughs> flashback, uh, we basically see uh, the the leader of Patan again, basically telling the Alliance ships that, yeah, we just screwed up and I've just signaled our surrender. And uh, Stasi is not willing to do so. He basically tells the other ships, look, stand with me. If you don't want to surrender, uh, Morlish Veed, who of course we know from previous issues, uh, essentially tells him, look, the hyperlanes have been mined, uh, you're outnumbered, you're outgunned, there's no way to escape, which means that he's going to have to use hyperlanes that only spacers know, uh, kind of the, the possibly more dangerous ones, but it's certainly less dangerous than staying there and getting killed or turning themselves over and presumably being executed and such. So he manages... Well, what would the, that look like? I mean, I, I just got to ask you, what would that what? look like? I mean, if you've mined every quote-unquote possible avenue, I mean, you're talking about the deep space here. Do you have like a complete 360 degree of mines that they managed to come in through the one door and you've now closed? Like, I don't know. That does seem a little completely absurd. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you, you think about the way that, that it's described in things like the Essential Atlas, though. There are kind of like the known hyperspace routes and because they're known to be safe, because they're known to go in short times and that sort of thing, uh, it, it makes sense in order to always use those lanes. So presumably it's the, the, the more military use and the more civilian use hyperlanes they've got mined, thinking those are the only ways in and out of the system. But sure, there must be some that go a little bit you know, closer to a star than would otherwise be considered safe, so it's not going to be a mined route, it's not thought of as a normal route, that sort of thing. I, mean, I could sort of buy into that, although... Okay. There's always that question, okay, they're mining hyperspace. Does that mean gravity well generators? Does that mean actually going into hyperspace, dropping a mine and coming out and leaving it sitting in hyperspace? Um, there's different ways that's been uh, portrayed when that type of phrase has been used also. Um, but that brings us to the present, and it actually tells us the present, Mon Calamari Space Docks. And uh, Stasi's answer to being trapped between the turbo lasers and the Imperial ships is to attack. Uh, to attack, in particular, uh, the Imperious at this point. Um, and it turns out that he's basically, he somehow anticipated all of these moves. And it sort of makes sense that he would anticipate that they would stop Guile and be able to turn the automated defenses back on. Still makes Guile the sacrificial lamb in this. But they've also got Monia, I believe it is, uh, who is there on Mon Calamari uh, and has is basically using what amounts to kind of a Star Wars version of a laptop. Looks almost like one of those old typewriters in a case. Uh, and she's hooked into the system, and she's able to override things through this back door elsewhere. So they're able to turn the defenses against the Star Destroyers that just showed up, um, which is fine and all. And that is something that they could have anticipated. Now they've got a backup plan just in case the Imperials get to it. But then it turns out that, okay, they managed to somehow get Alliance personnel onto the Imperius, dressed as stormtroopers, so that when the regular folks... Uh, showed up on the Imperius, and apparently that happened at least the, if what we were actually seeing in the previous issue was what was actually happening, not just a description of what might happen, then we've already seen that there was a skeleton crew aboard, uh, the Alliance trooper, the Alliance troops came aboard and took down the skeleton crew, and then these stormtroopers were supposed to pop out and take down the Alliance. Okay, you have to be assuming that there's going to be stormtroopers there to take them down, and somehow they take out the stormtroopers and replace them with themselves so it turns out that the stormtroopers are actually more alliance people to take the skeleton crew back over 
again. That's well, see, why I it seems like there's as, a little too much. I saw it as they the all of them that are in the stormtrooper armor and in the imperial officer armor had slid themselves in with the skeleton crew. So when the rebels showed up, they were already with the captives. So that way, when this the trap was sprung, they were then freed by the imperial stormtroopers in hiding. And the Imperial Stormtroopers didn't realize that there were rebels in the midst of that skeleton crew. And well, yeah. then, boom. They yeah, then but turn- if you're going to do that, I mean, you're really planning for In order for that to make sense, to put them aboard as part of the skeleton crew so they can play this role of saving the non-disguised Alliance troops from the Imperials by being the Imperials that were supposed to spring the trap, they had to have known the trap was going to happen in that form in the first place and make arrangements to replace those specific stormtroopers to get aboard the ship. And if you can do that, why can't you just take the ship that way instead of needing to have the one group come in followed by another group that's impersonating the stormtroopers? It's overly elaborate. It's like saying that, you know, um, you know, the, the, the necessary element in a particular, let's say it's a fantasy story to uh, to save someone from a a disease uh, is that you have to go to this giant mountain to be able to find I don't know or no take it back I take it, just use a realistic example um, uh, Frodo you have to go to Mount Doom and drop the One Ring into Mount Doom otherwise it'll be destroyed and to do it you will have to walk your way across Middle Earth you know and no one just walks into Mordor so you have to do all these crazy things to be able to get there with this fellowship and such. But actually, oh yeah, Gandalf, seems like you've got big-ass eagles that'll fly you wherever you want to go and that are always conveniently there when you need them. How's about you save us a whole lot of time, heartache, and the building of Mordor's forces, and just let's fly Frodo at least part of the way so that he doesn't have to walk across all of Middle-earth and allow the army's time to build up. Overly complicated plot to get where they need to go when there is something much more simplistic. Plus, again, they had to assume that that's the way that this guy was going to pull the trap. And I can understand them expecting there to be a trap, because he knows him from the Battle of Kamas, but what from the Battle of Kamas is going to tell him that part of the trap will be stormtroopers hiding out in, like, lockers and stuff, and that he needs to replace those stormtroopers somehow? In overly complex, unnecessary, cool moment, but as soon as you just step back and start thinking about the logic of it, it all starts to fall apart. Well, see, I never thought that they were part of the group that sprung it. I thought they were part of the group before that. I always assumed that the Stormtrooper armor they were wearing was part of the skeleton crew, not part of the ambush. But, I don't know, it, it isn't actually described very well. But so that's we not what we're run. saying, right? We've got, um, uh, sorry, Lieutenant, armor's Imperial, but those inside it are Alliance. I, you don't see any other Stormtroopers anywhere. There's no Stormtrooper bodies on the ground. All you see is that these Stormtroopers who were supposed to jump out, they're Stormtroopers, their helmets are off, it's Alliance, folks. Um, and then here's Hondo Carr pulling off his hat, um, which apparently was enough of a disguise. He must have held his head down or something. Uh, and he's revealing that they're actually Alliance troops. There is nothing in this issue, because of how fast it goes, to ever suggest that these stormtroopers were actually part of the skeleton crew. So when the stormtrooper ambush popped out of the closets and stuff, they took him out. And that was their way of doing it. Otherwise, if he took him out, why would he need to explain who it is that's in the armor to the befuddled Imperial Skeleton Crew Commander guy? It just it, it, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, okay, anyway, so they've got control of the Imperials on the inside. They have control of the uh, cannons themselves. We get to see more space battle, more uh, action for Rogue Squadron. Uh, we do wind up seeing one member of Rogue Squadron, Ronto, get killed 
uh, in that battle, not one that we really know at all, so there's not a lot of emotional impact at the moment, but we see a member of Rogue Squadron get killed, and we find that as uh, the Alliance ships are trying to escape, Stasi puts in motion basically um, an, an end game for this plan. He doesn't believe that he is valuable necessarily as a symbol per se, and thinks of himself as just another soldier. And he's going to take his ship uh, to the ring and blow it up, knowing that uh, Valen will want to focus on him, even at the expense of letting everything else, including the Imperius, go. Turns out he's basically right, except as the ship uh, is on its way, uh, Joram Bay winds up taking uh, a starfighter, one of his little the, the new X-Wing types, the Crossfire, whatever it's called, um, takes it, lands on the ship, runs up to where Stasi and, y- and Yorub are the last two aboard, and basically Yorub convinces, well, it doesn't even have to convince Joram Bey. Joram Bey and Yorub are trying to convince Stasi not to be the one to stay behind, and Yorub tells Bey, do your duty, and Bey punches Stasi and knocks him out and takes him out of there. So it's Yorub, the second-in-command, who winds up essentially going down with the ship, um, slamming it into the ring as he says, this is the Galactic Alliance cruiser Indomitable, Captain Jaius Yorub commanding. Indomitable, of course, being the title of the uh, the story, the name of the ship. Uh, the, not the name of the ship they're captured, but the name of the ship that they are on, the command ship of the Galactic Alliance, remnant at this point. Though battles have been lost, the Alliance still lives. We have not surrendered. We do not concede the stars. We will win back our birthright. Freedom. And then, of course, there's a huge explosion takes out about a third of the ring, leaving Valen to basically... Um, he, go, he basically tells his second-in-command to just tell you know the Sith whatever they want, and he goes back to his room, and we see him holding a blaster, so we're assuming that he's going to commit suicide over this rather than let the Sith punish him. Um, and we wrap up with what amounts to essentially a victory. There were some people lost, quite a few people, ten fighters, eight uh, lost, eight confirmed dead. There are members of uh, some of these ships that have wound up releasing in escape pods over DAC who are now trying to get with the uh, resistance, the Mon Calamari resistance, on the planet itself. Hopefully they'll be able to be extracted someday rather than being found by the Imperials. But uh, as a reward slash punishment for saving Stasi, Joram Bey uh, is promoted to be the new second-in-command of the Alliance Remnant. Um, and we leave Indomitable there with uh, a power shift, uh, both in terms of the leadership of the Galactic Alliance Remnant, but also power shift in terms of now the Imperius, which still has that name, at least for the moment, now being a new major ship, a new flagship for the Alliance Remnant and being denied to the Sith Empire. I think that, I mean, despite the the what? over-complexity of that plan, I think this was a highly enjoyable story, especially given that it's a story that doesn't have Dursama involved, doesn't have Kate Skywalker involved, or most of our regular characters. This is an Alliance Remnant story. I mean, you don't even really get much in the way of other Imperials that we've met before in this. This... But it still goes down as a entertaining and important story in the Annals of Legacy. And there was a lot going on in just the two issues. I mean, <laughs> that was quite a bit of battle, and you had two battles involved at the same time. And you got Hondo Car slid in there, and Rogue Squadron. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with that. Now, at that point, we move into issue 22, The Wrath of the Dragon, the... Uh, the assumption being that this is a play on the title Clause of the Dragon that we saw previously, the dragon being Darth Crate, right? Crate, Crate, Dragon, and all that. Well, this is immediately in the aftermath of Indomitable. New art by Alan Robinson, Ostrander continuing on storytelling where he left off in the previous arc. And 
Crate is having none of this. None of this uh, rebellion on behalf of the Mon Calamari. And while he does acknowledge that, yeah, Jiao Jahan is the guy who gave them the codes and everything, he's going to make an example of the Mon Calamari. 10% of the Mon Calamari population are to be executed effective immediately, starting with the leaders who were there on hand. And this includes some Korin being killed, because some of them try to stand up to Darth Azard, who is also a Korin, claiming that he's one of them, and no, he's like, I'm not one of you, I'm a Sith, and kills them too. Uh, and the plan is for the rest of the Mon Calamari to be essentially put into work camps and such until eventually they die. Um, essentially, it's genocide. You even get a point where Gahan says, you know, Lord Crate, this is genocide! And he, he doesn't make any bones about it. Yes, you have no one to blame but yourself, Jiao Jihan. You can die knowing that you were responsible for the death of your people. And this was a shock moment. Because I remember reading this thinking, holy crap, now is when they're really going to take chances with some of these long-established species that we've seen within the Star Wars galaxy. You know, it's 137 years after A New Hope at this point. You know, it's 133 years after Return of the Jedi. Finally, they're going to take some big, big chances and do some game-changing. And from here on, the situation with the Mon Cal's becomes more and more untenable. It becomes a big part of the, the ending arcs of this series. And it's going to wind up being a part of the characterization of Sauk uh, and some of the other characters that we meet in the arcs that we've gotten so far of Legacy Volume 2. Um, unfortunately, it's being told with extremely cartoony art. i got to say that the moment when Darth Crate looks at Jahan when he's speaking and says, Silence! He looks, he looks like something out of a kid's cartoon that's meant to be an enemy that is so goofy that he's funny. This artwork is not what I would say. This is an incredibly dark story and extremely cartoony, goofy, kiddie-looking artwork in a lot of respects. Well, on the artwork side, I'll give it this, that, that it's not very often. I mean, there there have been other artists that have had some really bad artwork that's been every single panel, and not every panel is terrible uh, or, or drawn in that regard, like the silence one. There's some that are are actually a little better than others but yeah there also is another reference uh that warlock made uh he goes should i prepare the stasis chamber my lord this trip coming on the heels of the loss of skywalker must be taking on a must be taking a toll on you uh and so it was interesting you know as you mentioned with 27 how this you know takes place after what will happen in 27 so i was like oh kind of slick you know and and then the very next panel it's another darth crate arms akimbo <laughs> as he's talking, and he looks like he's, again, out of a little kid's cartoon. Um, dark, incredibly important story, and yet at the same time, this is an odd choice of, of fill-in artists. Remember, if it's not a story focusing on Kate Skywalker, they tend to give Jan Durst some time to do those stories and do the, have other artists come in for these other ones. Um, now, this transmission is going to be picked up in loyalties. We'll see that uh, the next time we take a look at Legacy. But basically, this has been broadcast to the galaxy at large. Uh, the people back aboard the Imperius, uh, Garstazi, Jorembe, and their men, uh, they want to do something about it, but they know that there's nothing they can do to actually help the Mon Calamari at this point. It would be a slaughter. Um, they have to bide their time and make sure any sacrifices uh, or martyrs among the Mon Calamari are avenged someday, and that that helps serve um, to strengthen their cause. We do know, though, that there were some non-Mon Calamari, non-Korans who were already on the planet, including, among others, Monia, right, from Rogue Squadron, who was there doing the little weird laptop-looking, typewriter-looking thing to reactivate the automated cannon. She has now been stuck there behind 
of the Sith-controlled lines here. And we wind up finding her as she's trying to escape some uh, stormtroopers who basically have her cornered, and in come two Imperial Knights that wind up saving her. Trace Sind, uh, an older man, older bearded man, and Sigildare hopping in here, uh, a, young, a younger woman. And you get this sense between them that there's a lot of tension there because Garstazi's alliance remnant and Rowanfell's Imperial Knights and his Imperial faction, uh, they're not allies yet at this point. In fact, the last time that didn't go so well. But here, there is bigger, there are bigger fish to fry. They need to work together at this point and see the bigger picture as, uh, Trace Sind, uh, tells Sigil Dare. Uh, it's interesting that we're getting these two factions together at this point uh, on what amounts to a rescue mission. They go and rescue uh, the other members of the Alliance troops that they were able to, you know, to locate at least as far as where they were captured, where they were imprisoned, save them, impersonate an Imperial crew, and take, of all people, Darth Azard's personal shuttle. Uh, he then shows up and kills the Imperial officer who uh, was mind-tricked into letting it happen. Uh, they steal his shuttle and are taking off when Darth Azard shows up to try to stop them, and Trace Sind has to basically leap out of the ship as it's just as it's starting to rise and duel Darth Azard in order to cover their escape. Uh, an interesting way to give us a character remaining behind on Mon Calamari so we have a heroic character we can focus in on um, anytime we perhaps visit this in the future. It's nice that they left open that door. Oh, well, it's also funny, too, that the Imperial Knights had also sabotaged the Imperius. You know, he's like, well, the Admiral is looking for sabotage, and he'll find it. He'll know the first explosives are meant to be found, so he'll find the second set. He won't find the third. And so they're on their way to warn him about that. But the other thing, too, was that, that Ronto turned out to not be dead, too, and that they were able to uh, save him. Uh, you know, I, I like the fact that they brought in the Imperial Knights, you know, that they're an, a faction that was brought in for legacy that always intrigued me. Uh, going back, I want to know, you know, when were they formed? You know, I was really hoping Sword of the Jedi was going to finally, you know, go there that we'd see that Jaina formed them or something, you know. But uh, it, it's funny, though, too, that that the uh, younger one, Dare, she's all dressed up as the Imperial soldier and stuff, you know, waiting to do the ambush. I, I just, you know, I like it. There's a. Uh, a moment where one of the guys comes up and he's like, what's the meaning? And she does like this force shove and, and knocks one guy out of the way. But it's a little weird because it's like she sticks her hand out one direction and, and tells the one guy to stop and then turns around and immediately shoves with the other hand another soldier. And that guy's still watching. And then Snid comes up behind and, and knocks the guy out. It's like, huh, you just thought she just force shove both directions or something, you know? But well, it's, it's, Sin- it's an inconsistency in the artwork. They're walking into the shuttle. So facing into the shuttle. The guy, the guy that she first puts her hand out on and pushes that says, you know, what is the meaning? And he's cut off. That guy is to her immediate right. And yeah. then they, sh- they change the camera angle, so to speak, to behind her, still facing into the shuttle. And all of a sudden, that guy uh, is to the right and nothing's happened to him. Yeah, and so it's the guy on the left that she's pushing. It's, it's like they've yeah. changed which, which are. I guess the one thing we should be happy about is at least they're still facing into the shuttle. It's yeah, not true. like what they did with AG-37 where they cut him in half back in Legacy Volume 2 and they wind up changing which arm is cut off and which one's still attached and all that kind of stuff. Well, Cindy kind of reminds me of a Django Fett-type clone. You know, he's got like a, a, the darker color skin. But when he jumps out and he starts uh, attacking Darth Hazard or Azard, uh, you know, Azard goes, Jedi, no, one of Fell's forcelings, pity. I'd hoped for a match. And it's interesting that the Sith 
consider the Jedi more of a match than Imperial Knights. I mean, that's that aspect of the Imperial Knights that I've always been intrigued by, and I was always looking forward to more books to kind of describe the differences between the two. You know, I mean, we know that the Imperial Knights serve the Empire or serve the Emperor and his you know, view of the force and, and the way that he serves the force, you know, he serves the force and then uses them and they serve the force through him versus the Jedi who just served the force by themselves. So it, it's, I'd be curious to see how the way they go about it creates the order, because it seems like the Sith don't really see the Imperial Knights as as big a threat as the Jedi. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And, and he's giving him a run for his money, certainly because it takes uh, an explosion caused by the escaping ship um, to finally cover their escape, and he leaps down from the platform, and you don't know what happens to him. You assume he's going to be alive, at least until the next page where they confirm it, and Azard uses basically a force bubble, either that or he had some, uh, that little soap bubble stuff on him, um, and escapes from the <laughs> right. explosion himself. So he's still around. Uh, we finally see the shuttle make its way to the Imperius. They talk with Stasi. Um, uh, Monia says, you know, we don't need to be friends, referring to the Alliance and uh, Rowan Fell's version of the Empire, uh, but perhaps we and Rowan Fell should be allies. Trace Sind, like my uncle, like my people, was willing to sacrifice himself to the greater good. Uh, thank you for the book promotion there, by the way. Um, and then Sigildare says, you know, Master Sind was willing to sacrifice himself, but I believe he still lives. The first Empire learned to its sorrow that the Mon Calamari do not simply lie down and die. Darth Crate will learn it as well. Uh, if I know him, Master Sin will find some way to join whatever resistance group the Mon Calamari will already be creating. And we see him, as she says that, um, uh, meeting up with the Mon Cal's and joining that group. Uh, we'll wind up seeing more of that uh, in the future, though I forget off the top of my head which particular uh, tale. Although, I must say, kind of thinking about this here, um, that I, I, her phrasing's a little funny. Uh, the First Empire learned to its sorrow that the Mon Calamari did not simply lie down and die. First Empire. You mean yours? You mean the one you serve? Because if the Sith Empire is a new empire somehow, this is the empire that became the Imperial Remnant and then started calling itself the Empire again. Um, you're the same organization. Um, so it seems like it's interesting that she's talking about the First Empire as if it was something that needed to be toppled and it showed the strength of the Mon Calamar that they didn't give in and good that they didn't give in. And yet... That'd be like, you know, someone from the United States uh, praising, I guess, in a sense, uh, you know, praising the Taliban fighters. You know, yeah, America learned that the Taliban didn't give in in Afghanistan and they kept on with the terrorist attacks. Um, yeah, so you're talking against your country in the way that you're saying that? That's, I don't know, it, it seems like an odd... Uh, and of all characters to say that, it seems odd that Sigildare, who is an Imperial herself, albeit Rowan Fell's version of the Empire... Um, would be the one to say that. But we wrap up um, with Garstazi telling Sigildare, yeah, go ahead, make contact with Rowanfell. Old enmities must give way to new realities. Um, it's time for them to talk again and hopefully come up with an alliance. And as the tale ends, uh, he renames the Imperius the Alliance, which is a cool name for the ship. But again, I gotta kind of think back about the odd scenarios that that could bring up. But you know, uh, uh, alliance forces to our rear. Okay, wait. Do you mean that the star destroyers behind us with its starfighters, or do you mean like a whole bunch of ships to our rear? Please, please tell me. Uh, let's be a little more specific. I think they should rename. If they, we're gonna do that, we need to rename the Marines and them simply as the Americans. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a nice, interesting little take on everything. I, I like the introduction, like I said, of, of those Imperial Knights. The fact that what we got going on with Dak. You know, we start to see it here. 
gives you an idea of the negative, you know, consequences we're going to see for these people. And I got to say, this is an issue that, you know, it looks like when you just see it, when you know that, oh, it's just a one issue story, it doesn't say part one, two, three, or whatever on the credits page. You're thinking, oh, it's not Dursima. It's a one issue story. Probably not going to mean much of anything. And oh, look, it's about this rogue squadron pilot and a couple of Imperial Knights. Yeah, it's going to be a throwaway story. It's going to have very little impact on anything. But this is another critical linchpin in this series. What's happening on DAC, huge impact on the rest of the series. And this is the beginning of bringing together the Alliance and Fell, which is going to be a crucial alliance throughout the rest of this series. It's it's interesting mm -hmm. to me that these that, that John Ostrander and Jen Dershman to, a, to an extent, because obviously they, they plot out the stories of these together, but it seems like he's someone who doesn't feel as though to do something important, you need to have a whole bunch of issues. You need to have like a five-part tale to do something important. You can do something that is a game-changer or game-changers in a simple one-issue story, not take up too much time with it, just get the story done and move on to the next step of the tale. Not everything needs to necessarily... Uh, be seen, uh, which I guess is why he would take the approach of doing that weird thing back with Indomitable of having the, this is what's going to happen, be what's being said as it's actually happening, so that it would be a two-issue story rather than three. Uh, in this case, for a single-issue story, wow, talk about an impact. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like I said, you know, we're not going to see the impact now, but it, it has lasting repercussions into the next Legacy volume, so... You know it's a major, major game changer. I mean, it's the equivalent of what happened in New Jedi Order with Coruscant. And finally, issue 27, we jump from 22 to 27, again, jumping over loyalties and the Hidden Temple to give us Into the Core, taking place immediately after Claws of the Dragon, taking place uh, prior to the events that we saw in uh, Indomitable, apparently, or at least uh, some of the events in Indomitable talked about that at the beginning of the show. Anyway. Uh, what we find is that Darth Weirlock III is heading into the deep core. He's trying to find basically a cure, if you want to call it that, for those Yuzhan Vong growths that only he and Darth Malady and Krayt know about um, that are basically trying to take over Krayt and turn him into a Vong creature, um, which is the whole reason why he captured Cade Skywalker in the first place, remember, back in Claws of the Dragon. Now, Cade has escaped, and we flash back as Weirlock is in space. We flash back to the moments right after Cade's escape in Claws of the Dragon, which at this point is several issues ago. In fact, at this point, that was back at issue 19, and this is issue 27, to finally show what happened in the aftermath of those events. Turns out that Darth Nil was allowed to live, just barely, and he's not allowed to get his arm back that was cut off. They're going to give him a Yuzhan Vong arm, uh, essentially as part of an experiment for Malady. As for Talon, remember she got stabbed through, uh, impaled, by Cade, I believe it was, and uh, in her case, she's basically going to be put into a healing trance or a healing meditation, and if she recovers, she recovers. If she dies, she dies, and that is effectively her punishment. Um, Nil and Talon uh, are essentially demoted from their current positions, though, because Darth Strife is going to be recalled, last seen, I believe, in Cause of the Dragon, so that he can become the new Emperor's Hand. Um, and Nil basically is whining about, you know, I earned my place as your hand. I deserve better than this. It's like, yeah, you deserve death, but you'll live and maybe at some point get a chance to get this position back or to earn the position back again. Um, but Crate is relatively weak from fighting with Cade um, and needs to be put back into stasis. And while he's in stasis, briefly, Warlock is searching through these ancient, this ancient knowledge 
and he pulls out the holocron of Darth and Daedu. And uh, you know, was, real quick before you get into Darth and Daedu, just the fact that you know it's one little panel, but there are so much books and Sith lore and scrolls and stuff around him there that I I, I had a moment where I stopped and. Wow, you know, the Jedi really did a really bad job of destroying all lore attached to the Sith, didn't they? <laughs> What's funny is, you know, to an extent, I mean, isn't that kind of the same type of thing as uh, Palpatine with the Jedi? I mean, we wiped the Jedi out from the <laughs> galaxy. Granted, people, you know, people on this planet don't know who they are, but there's all kinds of books, there's all kinds of videos, and holy crap, there's all kinds of Force users who are like the descendants of them that we never did find. Oh my god. You know what? <laughs> You may, it makes you wonder if when Palpatine in Dark Times uh, and in stuff like Star Wars Volume 2 was saying, you know, don't spend all your time thinking about the Jedi Lord Vader. We have bigger fish to fry. Maybe he probably should have said, you know what, never mind, go kill the little bastards. Because there's so many, like, loose... It's it's that whole thing of a... Uh, for a while there, it was like every new West End Games RPG adventure brought us another two or three survivor Jedi that we never knew existed. Um, yeah, exactly. They were all over the place. Wait, what? Yeah, How so, many are out here? <laughs> so let's just say that when it comes to purging, um, unless we're talking about the fact that you know you've got some some serious uh, weight uh, disorders going on with some of the the way the females are done in Clone Wars, uh, which could be another kind of purging. And when it comes to purging, the both the Jedi and the Sith are not particularly good at wiping out knowledge when it comes to uh, their rivals, which makes sense. You know, in mo in in the modern world, it's the same type of thing. You know, surely if something happened that wiped out the United States at some point, the sheer amount of information about the country out there could not be simply removed. You know, it just it, yeah. information is out there. It's the old thing. What was it? Inception. You know, in information is like a or an idea is like a virus. You know, it's the one thing that you know you can't stop from spreading. It's the most dangerous kind, et cetera, et cetera. So true. I have a question for yeah. you about this yeah. next with Darth and and Dedu. Is that how I should be saying it? And Dedu. Yeah. Well, later we find out that Endedu has put his spirit into this holocron. It's kind of like a shell. But at this point, Warlock's actually calling him Endedu, and he talks about things, you know, like if Darth and Dadu were reawoken. And I kind of get the feeling like he's known this entire time that Endedu has been in this holocron and that he is tricking the spirit into leading him where he needs to go by telling him kind of along the lines of like, hey, if we get there, maybe, you know, we can reanimate the body. But he never actually says it. Like, did you get that same hint? Like, he was playing the spirit? It's hard to say. I mean, it's, he definitely knows something is off. But whether he knows that's actually the spirit or not, that I can't tell. But he says, you know, he's, he said, you know, if it were found, speaking of like the actual tomb uh, of Darth Endedu, if it were found, uh, if Darth Endedu reawoke, that gets the attention of this spirit slash hologram. So, well, when they get to the that tomb, direction. he starts calling him in the image of Adadu. As soon as they get to the tomb, it's like at that point, then he like drops the familiarity with him. He stops calling him Darth Adadu. He's like image of Adadu. It's like I don't know. I just had that feeling like you know he knew the whole time and he was totally playing that spirit. Well, he says uh, later on. So, dog, have you discovered my final secret? You transferred your intellect to what we assumed was a holocron. It was more. It was a shell. Just as that moldering corpse is a shell. So he either figures it out at the time and is not too shocked by it, or he's had some inkling of it from before. He winds up going to the planet of Prakith uh, to Andedu's keep 
where Darth Nidu has been interred. And the idea is that he is trying to find the old knowledge of Ndedu because Ndedu had the ability essentially to somehow, he almost became like a zombie. He was able to basically, or, or sort of like a vampire, was able to sort of reanimate his own body and still control it with his spirit even after death, or at least that's the way the story goes. Um, it's one of these Sith Lords that kind of pops in uh, to the to the lore after the Hundred Year Darkness and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he's one that we don't know a lot about, but we get some background to him here. And we find when Weirlock arrives that there is this cult that exists there, essentially worshipping Andedu as the Malevolence. Either that or they're worshipping the ship from the Clone Wars, of course. Um, and the real Sith, or what he thinks of as a real Sith, Weirlock, is easily able to take down these followers who all have their own lightsabers, basically by tossing an image into their mind that each of them is Weirlock to each other. So they wind up just slaughtering each other until there's only one left. I thought that was kind of a an interesting way to deal with them, that it's sort of like, I don't even need to lift a finger to kill you guys. Here, snap my fingers. You're going to kill each other. That's how powerful I am. Yeah, that was a great scene. And, and the art here, it serves it well. I mean, it's it's not the most epic art I've ever seen, but it it's not bad at all. It, it, it serves the story. When uh, Dimitri, the brother of Gerlin, gets uh, slashed open, you know, when, when he slashes the, the image of Warlock, it's a chest wound. And then, you know, Dimitri's laying there and he's got this huge smoking hole. And then he falls back. And then the smoking hole, it's like the whole right shoulder from that hole, it's like it's ripping away from the rest of the body. Like, there's attention to detail here. That I liked it. I, I thought it was a good little bit of art, the way it progressed with the story worked on. And then, you know, as we get to the end and, and Darth Warlock uses force lightning on everyone else, that Dimitri guy or, or Gerlin drops to his uh, knees. Master. I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I like the story. This was a fun story because it was like old Sith meets new Sith. And the only time we had this before was when Krayt was talking with the holocrons of Bane and, and Anidu and, and of Darth Nil. It was something actively avoided, as you may recall, back during uh, uh, Legacy of the Force. You know, the one Sith kind of in the background, they're seeing what's happening with Jason, but they're not really sure that it fits into their plan. So they're essentially biding their time and such. Um, so uh, he takes the one survivor, has him lead him basically downstairs, uh, has the holocron speak a code word in a language that at least is written weird, um, that then opens up the floor into this secret sanctum where there's all kinds of scrolls and books and stuff, all of Darth Endedu's knowledge, and then the actual uh, sarcophagus in which his body is held. That's funny, because Weirlock makes a heck of a grand entrance. I, I couldn't help but think Batman, as he jumps into the room and his cape is like, whoosh, behind him and such. It was a very <laughs> awesome image of Weirlock, but it certainly seemed very, very dramatic of all things here. Um, but the basically the trick, or whatever you want to call it, uh, is that Ndedu is trying to be essentially revived to life. Um, he wants the holocron, which has Ndedu's actual spirit apparently in it, to be laid on Ndedu's body, which is holding this weird scepter-looking thing that's got a red crystal in it. And as he's being, you know, cajoled to do this, he's like, yeah, uh, no. Um, I'm not an idiot. So I'm going to read your books and see what kind of knowledge I can get out of here, but I'm not going to reanimate you. Uh, you're crazy. Mr. Sith Man, um, but the survivor from the cultists, who can use the Force, albeit not as well as Weirlock, is able to grab the holocron and stick it onto Andedu. But in doing so, it's it's like, okay, the holocron 
releases the spirit, and it's kind of hard to tell for a moment whether the, the spirit is going into the man or going into Andedu or what. Um, but it appears well, it at least... It almost seems like the holocron is taking Andedu's life essence and transferring it into the body. And like he's like taking that life force and then now moving his spirit from the Sith holocron back into his old flesh form. Yeah, it's definitely going into, like, in the, in the immediate image, it's hard to tell what exactly is happening. But it has to be uh, something where something's coming out of the mouth, and then something is going from the from the, the, the follower to the holocron, from the holocron to Endedu's body. Um, we then see energy going into, it looks like the guy, into or out of the guy, because there's no hat on his head. And then we finally see Endedu standing up, um, the only real, it, it's weird because the one thing I try to do is I try to compare the outfit between the two because either Andedu just managed to awaken and stand up in his own body that was in the sarcophagus or he's taken over the body of, which is what it sounds like later, uh, even though it doesn't seem to be the case, um, of the follower. Except when he's standing there, he's wearing his hat, which means if it's the follower's body, he takes the time to grab his hat and the pants. I was saying, well, let's look. Do the pants or the, the whatever you want to call it that's being worn by the follower match up with whatever is being worn by Andedu once he's revived, or does it more match the pants that we see on Andedu when he's actually in the sarcophagus? Turns out they drew the pants differently, so it doesn't match any of them. Um, that didn't provide any type of clue to help, help add to the confusion there. Um, but apparently, yes, it does somehow reinvigorate the spirit of Andedu himself. Um, but again, it's it doesn't seem like it totally makes sense with what winds up being said uh, later. And I'm looking for where he says it. Where does he talk about how he managed to move his um his spirit? Uh, it, I can swear that there's a point where he says, says it. it. You transferred your intellect to what we assumed that part. No. Or is it where you're talking about warlock? Your mind, the power is in your mind. Your mind forces. Maybe your body. maybe he doesn't say. It's just a okay. It, it doesn't really clear up how this worked. It's like he almost was like an energy vampire type of thing where he needed the other guy's energy somehow to infuse with his soul that's already inside the holocron in order to then put that soul back into the old body. Um, you get the sense that it's either that or some kind of like body jumping spirit, kind of like what we're going to wind up seeing with Carnage Muir and the Muir Talisman and such, um, or the movie Fallen with Denzel Washington. Um, but apparently that's not the case. Instead, it, for whatever reason, he needed the energy of that guy, but it's never explained why. If the whole idea was you're just supposed to put the holocron on his uh, body and that does the trick. It, it's well, it's think Sith magic. That, it's all mysterious, but it also is Yeah, I, th I think if, if Warlock would have been the one to put the, the holocron on there, it would have been Warlock's energy that revived the body. I think that that's, that's what the Sith holocron was doing, was it cast a spell, but it needed to come in contact with both his host body that he no longer was in and the body that he was going to steal the life energy from because his life energy was trapped in the holocron. Just to do what he was doing required that. He had no more to give, and he needed more from somewhere to 
to do the transference. Uh, and where Warlock, that's why I thought Warlock was was fooling this guy the whole time because you know he he didn't do it. But another interesting thing when, when they first drop into the chamber, I love the fact that there's all these little cracks and lava and stuff kind of lighting the chamber. And later that plays into stuff. But there is a moment where Warlock's talking about the fact that he realizes that almost everything's an illusion, uh, and kind of makes you at that point kind of think like, well, maybe he's not in the body. Maybe he never actually left the holocron at all. Maybe he just sucked that guy's you know body stuff in, and and it's all just illusion. You know, I mean, that's they kind of really get into that as to you know where the illusion begins and where reality ends, and Warlock kind of realizes that he's been in illusion almost the entire time. Well, see, that I don't see though. I, I don't see him as as being in a place where he was in an illusion. Um, the entire time, because uh, he's because basically you got and Dado attacks him, and they're doing battle and stuff, and 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 Dado is smack talking about you know uh, you're not really a Sith, you know our apprentices were more powerful than any of you masters are, blah blah blah. Turns out that the field of his choosing for battle is the mind, but it doesn't seem as though the whole thing is an illusion, at least not initially, because he says uh, your power is in the mind, your mind forces your body to obey even though dead. This, all this, is nothing more than a force illusion like the one I crafted for the fools above. But this is when there's all kinds of rocks and stuff flying at him that he hasn't seen. Uh, there's the uh, the ground, the lava is growing and growing and growing. It seems like that may be part of the illusion, but certainly not an illusion as he walked in and saw the room itself because Andedo hadn't been revived at that point. Um, surely he couldn't have been causing the illusion. And then as we get to the end... Um, he's able to basically turn the illusion and the fear against Endedu so that basically the fire, that is seemingly an illusion, is used against Endedu, but since Endedu is kind of, he himself is sort of all in the mind, it winds up defeating him and the body winds up dropping dead. And the room is unscathed, but the body drops right back dead. It's the crystal on the little scepter shatters. And he just uses the force to drop the body back in the sarcophagus and slam the sucker closed again. Um, so there's that, that the element of their, the battle itself is an illusion. I don't think necessarily anything in the room as it was set up as they were walking in, or anything necessarily prior to the resurrection and the battle, uh, were an illusion by itself. Um, but either way, Andedu is now down for the count. This super powerful Sith Lord turned out to be kind of a pushover in the sense that he could be defeated by Weirlock as opposed to having to be defeated by someone like Krayt. Although Weirlock is pretty powerful, you would expect that if there was going to be a big confrontation, Crate would have been the one to do it. Uh, although this does set up Weirlock here. And I will say that, you know, it, they give us the cool ending there, you know, talking about the meaning of being a Sith, the imposition um, of will on the Force, never doubt, etc., etc. A way will be found, a solution will be forged. Uh, it is all. It will all bend to his will, talking about uh, doing what Darth Crate desires because he is the leader of the one Sith and it's his will that they all follow. But I do like the fact that you've got Endedu talking about how essentially Weirlock is following orders. He follows the vision of someone else when the only vision he follows should be his own because there will come a later point in this series when Crate is in stasis uh, and actually thought to be dead. Turns out he's actually kind of stasis. He's believed to be dead but a lie is being told that he is not dead, he's just in stasis, only it turns out that he's actually not dead in, in stasis, if that makes any sense. Um, but there'll be some question as to what's going on with Crate, and he's in the stasis module. And at that point, Weirlock is in charge of the Sith. And he does start to do things his way, to an extent. And I wonder if part of him doing that, and being willing to pull one over on everyone, because uh, he'll get punished for Crate by it in the end, uh, I wonder if the seeds of that doubt 
are planted here. He makes such a big deal when Ndadu's talking about uh, Weirlock having doubt and about how he has no doubt, even in the final narration here. Now, you've got to wonder how much of this is him trying to convince himself that he doesn't, because certainly that uh, trying to follow his own vision thing will come into play. Maybe this is the seed of that. As it stands, this one feels important in giving us some background, but doesn't feel like it's as important in tying story concepts together at this point in the series as we had with Indomitable and Wrath of the Dragon. Yeah, and it was interesting, too, because the way it wraps up, it, it, it tells you that Warlock's will, what Warlock's vision is, is Lord Krayat's vision. That his vision is to make sure that Krayat's vision comes to pass, and that's what Ndandu didn't figure out. I, I like that, because, yeah, I thought that was totally playing into a seed as to what we see later with him as well. It, it's also interesting, too, that, you know, of that huge library that they had, he only took about maybe seven, nine He's, it looks like he's got like four books and three scrolls when he walks out when it's all said and done. There's still a lot of information still there. So, I mean, maybe that's part of why there's so much Sith Lord, you know, that when they go and they find it, they only take what they're looking for, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. I don't know. It's interesting. I should have brought the bigger vessel. Just not enough room in his shopping cart, apparently. Um, no, I, this is yeah. one of those, these weird trade paperbacks. When you're looking at an ongoing Star Wars series, uh, the assumption is you're going to need to read everything because it's all meant to be one longer story. But we've seen this with Knights of the Old Republic. We'll see this with Legacy. We saw this, uh, if you go back and you look at, you know, Republic and things like that, that for a while there, it really depended on the writer. And in KOTOR and Legacy, John Ostrander and John Jackson Miller managed to do things with what could have been story throwaway stories in making them essential to following the entire series. And that's what you get here. Uh, they're side stories, to be sure. They're not the story of Cade Skywalker, and that's why you don't have Dursima drawing them. But they're integral to putting this all together, and at least in the last one of those, uh, highlighting the danger that creates in and seeing what happens immediately after Claws of the Dragon there in those first uh, a few little flashback bits. But that's not something that Star Wars has always tended to do. We're talking about the Marvel series. We're talking about uh, Republic before it became Republic back when it was mostly... Uh, just known as Star Wars Ongoing. Um, it seems to have taken Star Wars a while to realize that even side issues can and perhaps should have an impact on everything else and that throwaway stories shouldn't be what's being relied on as filler. Um, you, you remember uh, Star Crash from Star Wars, the first oh on... Oh, God, Dark the one that was like the it, like a wannabe weird Star Wars version of Legend of Zelda or something? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it just one and done. I was like, here it was, and there it goes. Like, yeah, what was that? <laughs> I, you know, it's funny just to mention that real quick. I, in, in my travels, I stumbled across that. I went to a, a, a coast. I was stopped at a comic book store that they saw, and I just happened to go looking through their old Star Wars stuff, and boom, they had one copy of that, and it was the only one of the line that I didn't have. I'm like, <gasps> and they had it on sale for, for a dollar. I was like, sweet. <laughs> I think what they need to do for Star Crash is they just need to at some point um, retcon it and say that the entire uh, that entire story, uh, the tale of oh what was his name uh, Yoshi I think was the guy's name named after you know the little green dude that helps Mario uh, that Yoshi the Jedi there and his story is actually being told by a droid and then they could totally play it up by making the droid's designation. Uh, I don't know, what issue was that? Number 27 of Republic? You can make the droid's designation WTF-27 or something? <laughs> I can see that working. Well, next we'll uh, hit up our covers. Uh, with 20, 
you know, I got to say, you only have four issues here, but of these four, they're all pretty decent covers. I would say, like, of all of them, 21 is probably the one I like the least. Uh, 20, I, I've got a thing for space battles. This one, you see the uh, Indomitable kind of being attacked as it's, I'm assuming, on its way in towards the shipyards. Maybe it's curved away from the planet last minute or something. It's got some of the uh, little uh, futuristic tie daggers kind of coming at it, which, you know, honestly, I've never really understood those ships as a ship. Like, that, that's a concept that just kind of over me. I'm like, uh, okay. You know, they, they look cool, but beyond that, you know, it is what it is. It's got one of those computer generated planets in the background, uh, back when they were still doing that, where they started kind of infusing more computer generations into the, uh, covers. So, I mean, that didn't throw it off too bad. I still, I like it. It says last stand of the galactic Alliance. And I don't know. I love an action packed space battle shot. And this is one of those. that was really cool. Yeah. I think for the covers here, I mean, all pretty good. Um, one of the things we didn't get to talk about when we talked about the last uh, Knights of the Old Republic stuff was uh, the covers because we were running out of time. And it was one that I actually had wanted to point out from it because it's one where it's got characters talking, but it does that weird little thing where it's like there's a battle scene and there's a little circle up in the corner with a picture of one of the characters speaking, circle down in the corner with a picture of characters speaking. And that really just kind of harkens back to the old school, you know, Marvel and DC overly dramatic, uh, oh no, we're all going to die type covers that you get where it really didn't necessarily show something actually happening in the issue, but it was just meant to get people to pick them up off the rack and take them home and read them. Um, I'm generally not a big fan, though, still, of a lot of the the use of the text on the covers. I think Star Wars comics looked cooler and, and felt like they were more cinematic when they didn't have that on there. Uh, I do like the fact, though, that in issue 20, it's cover with, you know, that space battle showing up there. Because the last stand of the Galactic Alliance probably would have made more sense to put that on issue number two, because it's not referring to what's happening with the Imperius. It's referring to the Battle of Kamats, which was a nice uh, twist on it. It made you think, oh, no, they're going to be defeated when it turns out, nope, it's not. They're not defeated and it's not hyperbole. It's actually referring back to their defeat in the Sith Imperial War. I thought that was kind of a neat uh, a play on the way that they use the terms there. Uh, all mm-hmm. pretty good. The first two covers, the one uh, with the ships and the one with Garstazi, both of them done by Douglas Wheatley. You've got one then by Dan Scott, the cool cover of Darth Krait, you know, staring at the, the reader. Although, I will say, uh, the words again kind of make it go, uh. That would have been an awesome cover by itself with no words. Yeah. But instead at the bottom it says, Darth Krait is... Not pleased. I'm like, not pleased? He's not pleased. That's it? He's ordering a genocide. This might have been one of the times it might be okay to put pissed on the cover. I'm just saying. Or something else. Or it could say, say, Darth Crate's order. Genocide. To make people go, what? Instead, it's yeah, exactly. Darth Crate is not pleased. It's like, it's like you, you looking at what it says, not pleased. Think about Darth Crate looking the way he does on that cover. And think of him being not pleased as opposed to ordering a genocide. And can't you see him saying something like, I ordered barbecue sauce, you incompetent! (laughs) I said no mayonnaise! (laughs) That's not pleased. Genocide probably goes a little beyond that. Um, And then we have, of course, um, the cover with Weirlock actually done by Omar Francia, who is the man who did the interior art here. Um, Although that one, again, kind of neat but kind of misleading. It says uh, Sith versus Sith, and yes, it is. It's Weirlock versus Andedu, but we see Weirlock here with two lightsabers, and we're expecting that kind of action, and that is not what we get inside the issue. Beyond that, though, 
Um, it's a cool cover. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of red, but a cool cover. <laughs> yeah, twenty one with 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 Stasi. That's the one I didn't really care for that much. It, it's it's just compared to the others, it's not as epic. I would say uh, twenty two. You know, when when we were talking Claws of the Dragon and they had that one close up, twenty two is the one I always think of. You know, twenty two is the really cool cover. I agree. They should have gotten rid of that. You know, Darth Crate is not pleased. But on the upside, that's why when you when you get the uh, the full cover. Uh, jpegs and stuff like that that's why they're worth saving because they put those out there online you can at least get them in that regard and enjoy the art but 27 is one you know it's one of those art covers that i also i love a lot i adore it does have a lot of red uh the background the cave kind of has that computer generated image and it looks like there's like lava kind of coming down the insides of the wall but i, I don't know i really like i mean granted uh warlock's nose kind of has like a, a Bobo the Clown type of look to it with the black paint but for the most part it's a glorious cover and I, I love it between that one and, and 22 it's tough to say which one I like more um, I, I think I'm more a fan of all the red and the lava and the, the dark cave look of, of uh, 27 though but yeah I, I like the series overall it was it was a lot of fun it was a good ride it definitely adds like we said to the lore of what's going on in this era and the beauty here is if you're following you know Legacy Volume 2 and you have no idea what's going on with all that kind of stuff this is the episode or, or the issue that you want to get this and the next one to kind of feel what's going on with, with what happened with Dax so this is the one where the event happened that ticked off the Emperor that caused everything you see later so it's definitely it's worth reading in that regard but if you're taking the ride which i highly suggest you do go from legacy zero zero and a half all the way up to uh, legacy war go, go do the ride man it's worth it. it it's a lot of fun you'll you'll learn some things including in eras that you weren't expecting to read from and if i may make a suggestion to uh to marvel if they ever do decide to buy the images that make up the uh, dark horse star wars library and start reprinting anything because of course uh the reprints of at this point for Dark Horse have probably all for the most part been announced. If they ever do a reprint of anything of a collection of issues or the issue itself for Into the Core number 27, I would suggest that on the cover they use that awesome Batman-esque image of Weirlock jumping down into the tomb down beneath that looks so cool. You know, the one leg up, the one down, the arms out to the side, the cape billowing out behind him. Uh, and follow the Dark Horse tradition um, that we see on the covers of these of this particular arc uh, and simply have the cover say, Darth Weirlock is hopping mad. Oh, I want it to say, come at me, bro. No, hopping mad. <laughs> it needs to be something just as goofy and what? As not pleased. <laughs> I find your lack of faith mildly perturbing. I find my lack of puns disturbing. Now, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com, as well as all the second Airborne Division podcasts there at the Star Wars Report Network shows. Uh, you can find our episodes there available on Zoom, Stitcher, or on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Uh, you can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us at 
SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. And of course, if you want to check out, gosh, the uh, Star Wars Timeline Gold's Facebook page is facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold. You want to check out the uh, Facebook page or the Twitter for the upcoming Rebels Roundtable show that we're all putting together, the Republic Forces Radio Network team and the Star Wars Beyond the Films team coming together for that for Rebels. Uh, that is facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable. That is also Twitter at Rebels Round. Uh, you can also check out the Amazon shop that my wife and I run is amazon.com slash shops slash Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O collectibles and if you want to check out any of those videos that i've been putting up onto youtube from the star wars library from the star wars uh home video library and stuff like that uh do a search for those names or a username chrono radio like the old uh, podcast that i had back in the day now lastly before we go we wanted to take a moment to talk to you about our sponsors audible audible has a trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash star wars report you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't put us the odds that everyone will be going woohoo when we finally reach Vector. Two more story arcs to go before we get there. What are the odds that the story group is going to make the EU canon forever? Let me see if I can yeah, add, yeah. add me back, add the other me back in here. Um, add people to the call. Add me button to the call. Add to call. And it's not even. Okay, why is it not even letting me? I mean, it's, okay, there we go. Now it looks like it's like trying to call the other one, so let me go in there and see if it'll pick up. <laughs> That's because I'm the one hosting the call. <laughs> Fuck you. Not this time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, uh, um, what the f is his name? The, the wizard, Gandalf. Okay. Gandalf. Uh, what we find is that Darth Weirlock III is heading into the deep core to try to find a, a cure, essentially, for what's... Uh, Holy uh, shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap! I felt the air build it, building up in my throat, and I was like, I can get through it, I can get through it. No, I can't! Boom! Okay, commence primary ignition. Holy shit. Okay. <clears throat> that may be a blooper right there. Anyway. um, Indeed. Okay. <laughs>